This morning we conclude our series on the Ten Commandments, looking, of course, at the Tenth Commandment. But first, a bit of review concerning the Ten Commandments in general. We've seen throughout the course of our study that the Ten Commandments are broad. They prohibit whole categories of sin, according to Jesus, who taught us in Matthew chapter 5 that lust is prohibited in the commandment concerning adultery, and that sinful anger is prohibited in the commandment concerning murder. Understanding this principle well, there was a chief of an indigenous people group who said, I would rather have the 7,777 commandments and prohibitions of our ancestors than the Ten Commandments of the Christians. For the Ten Commandments demand my whole heart, whereas the 7,777 ancestral commands and prohibitions leave room for a lot of freedom. (laughs) Of course, the chieftain was right that the Ten Commandments actually prohibit every sin. They're a summary for us of God's law in its entirety. And so there is no freedom, so to speak, or wiggle room to sin. There are no loopholes when we understand that the commandments are exceedingly broad, as the psalmist says. But of course, the chieftain didn't understand what real freedom is. And he views the law as being constricting and a negative thing, that he's shackled by the law. And so he wants less law, so he has more freedom. But we've seen throughout the course of our study that the law is not negative in the sense that it doesn't impede our life. It's not constricting. It doesn't shackle us. The law is, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, holy and righteous and good. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, informing us of our duty towards God, which is also actually the path of love, which is also the path of thriving. That being said, though the law is holy and righteous and good, the law is useless to us with respect to our justification before God. Some people think that a high view of God's law and an emphasis on the rigor of God's law makes us legalists. In other words, if you, if you really hold up God's law as being holy and righteous and good and broad and thorough and you emphasize the rigor of the law, the perfection of the law, the demands of the law, well, then you must be a legalist. But J. Gresham Machen rightly observed rather that it is a low view of law that brings legalism. A high view makes a man a seeker after grace. When we think of the law as something that's pretty manageable, that's when we're actually in danger of becoming legalists. Because that's when we're going to begin to think, I can actually do it and stand on my own two feet before God. I don't need no substitute. I don't need a representative before God. I don't, I don't need a mediator between God and man. I'll just keep God's law. And He'll accept me because I'm a good person. When we have a low view of God, that kind of thinking can creep into our minds. But when we actually have 
a high view of the law of God, when we understand its breadth and its depth, when we understand the holiness of God and the perfection that the law requires, we cry out like Isaiah, Woe is me, for I'm unclean. And we seek after grace. So a high view of God's law actually guards us against legalism because it teaches us, listen, we need Jesus. We cannot come to God with our law keeping in our hands and expect that He will welcome us to Himself, reconcile us to Himself, and give us an eternal inheritance and grant that we might live with Him forever in that new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. When we have a high view of the law, we trust and hope in Christ and in Christ alone for our justification. The law is useful to us then in preparing us for justification by being an instrument in the Holy Spirit's hands to convict us of sin and show us our need of Christ. And then, after having been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, The law is useful to us in our sanctification. The Holy Spirit uses the law to inform us of our duty toward God. He uses the law to make it clear to us what Christ-likeness looks like as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. As Romans chapter 8 teaches us that we are and will be. So it's in these two following ways then that the law is profitable to us as Christians in the New Covenant. It constantly reminds us of our need of and dependence upon Christ's merit, safeguarding us against legalism. And secondly, it shows us the path of our duty towards God and our fellow man after having been justified before God on the basis of Christ's merit and Christ's merit alone. So with these things in mind, let's begin now our tenth and final study of the Ten Commandments. First, we should define what coveting is. Because it's one thing to say, thou shalt not covet. It's another thing to understand what that means and what it is exactly that's prohibited when God says, you shall not covet. Philip Ryken says that coveting is not simply wanting something we don't have. It's wanting something that someone else has. I disagree with the first part of that statement. I think that coveting is, in fact, wanting something that we don't have, regardless of who presently has it. Thomas Watson defines coveting as an insatiable desire of getting the world. Never mind whether the world is found in your neighbor's possession or whether the world is found on the shelves at Massey Home or courts or online available to be brought into the island, when we feel like we must have the world or any particular thing in the world, when we feel like we must have it and that we can't be happy or content without it, we're coveting. Listen to Riken helpfully explain the breadth of this commandment. The Ten Commandments lists The Tenth Commandment lists several things that we are tempted to covet. However, this list is not meant to be complete because it ends by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
This closes any last loophole. The items listed are not exhaustive, they are only suggestive. What we are forbidden to covet is anything at all. We may not covet other people's attributes, age, looks, brains, or talents. We may not covet their situation in life, marriage, singleness, children. We may not covet spiritual attainments like a more prominent place of ministry in the church or wider recognition of our spiritual gifts. We are not allowed to covet anything at all. God's laws rule out every unlawful desire. So as the Westminster Larger Catechism says, discontentment with our own estate is at the heart of this commandment. Discontentment with our own estate. And whenever our heart latches on to something as a must-have in that discontented state, we're coveted. You may have noticed by now, if you were here for the sermon on the first commandment, you may have noticed that coveting then is actually in its nature the same thing essentially a repetition of the first commandment thou shalt have no other gods before me if coveting is feeling like you must have this thing or you can't be happy what is idolatry feeling like you must have this thing or you can't be happy. Is this ultimate desire for, this giving of worship to something. So the Tenth Commandment then is essentially a repetition of the First Commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Colossians 3.5 says that covetousness is Idolatry. Not covetousness leads to idolatry, but covetousness is idolatry. And Ephesians 5.5 says that covetous people are idolaters. It doesn't say that covetous people are in danger of becoming idolaters. It says that covetous people are idolaters. So we see here that there's an exegetical foundation for identifying the overlap between the first and the tenth commandment. It's not simply just a theological inference, but Colossians 3.5 says covetousness is idolatry. And Ephesians 5.5 says that covetous people are idolaters. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the service, Martin Luther said you can't break the last nine commandments until you've broken the first one. So, there's a relationship between the first commandment and the last nine commandments, to be sure. But that doesn't mean that they're all the same. We can say that idolatry leads to breaking the last nine commandments. But we can't necessarily say of the other eight commandments, as we can say of the tenth, that it actually is idolatry. Let me explain this. You can't break the other nine commandments without breaking the first one, as Martin Luther said. So, for instance, pertaining to the second commandment, visual stimulation must become more important to us 
than God's prescription before we were ever going to make the kind of images prohibited in the second commandment. We must idolize images or covet images before we're ever going to make images contrary to God's will. Or likewise, something else must become more important to us than God. That is, we must idolize or covet something else before we are ever going to misuse God's name, break His Sabbath, dishonor our parents, murder, commit adultery, or steal. Idolatry leads to the breaking of all of those commandments. And you can't do those, break all those other commandments unless you first commit idolatry. But, let me say that another way to make this point clear. In other words, you must break the first and then the second. Or you must break the first and then the third. Or break the first and then the fourth, and so on. But when we come to the tenth commandment, you are breaking the tenth as you break the first. And you are breaking the first as you break the tenth. You're committing idolatry in the very act of coveting. And you are coveting in the very act of idolatry. So when we come to the tenth commandment, we're not simply saying that one leads to the other. But we're saying that one is the other. (coughs) In that sense, and here's the point of this. In that sense, the first and tenth commandments serve as bookends for the ten commandments. Teaching us that proper obedience to God's law begins and ends with the avoidance of idolatry. Or to state it positively, proper obedience to God's law begins and ends with sincere, wholehearted worship of God. Is the Tenth Commandment redundant then? In other words, why not just have the Nine Commandments? Is it a useless repetition? Not at all. First, as I just said, it reinforces the importance of worshiping the one true God over against idolatry. So when we do see repetition in Scripture, the same thing again and again, it's not useless. It's not like, well, why did God tell us 10 times or 20 times instead of just telling us once? It's because He's repeating it for emphasis. So certainly at least that is going on. But second, the repetition of the prohibition of idolatry highlights a distinct aspect of idolatry that's not as clearly in view in the first commandment. The first commandment teaches us what idolatry looks like in relationship to God. Since the first four commandments focus particularly on what it looks like to love God, what we call the first table of the law, the placement of a prohibition against idolatry within the first four commandments, or within the first table of the law, teaches us that we are not loving God when we are idolatrous. The Tenth Commandment teaches us what idolatry looks like in relationship to our neighbors. Since the last six commandments focus particularly on what it looks like to love our neighbor, the second table of the law, 
The placement of another prohibition against idolatry within the last six commandments teaches us that we are not loving our neighbors when we are idolatrous. We fail to love God when we are idolatrous because we're failing to give Him what we should. Our worship, our devotion, our affection, and so forth. Likewise, we fail to give our neighbor what we should when we are covetous because we are failing to give him or her what we should. Our joyful support and service. Let's consider that idea a little bit further. The implied duty in the 10th commandment, because you remember... It's not only what is prohibited is prohibited, but also the opposite of what is prohibited is implicitly commanded. So it's not just enough to just don't sleep with someone you're not married to, but be faithful, be a diligent and good husband or wife, as the case may be. So the Tenth Commandment has an implied duty, even as covetousness is prohibited. The implied duty in the Tenth Commandment is twofold. The first duty is, as I have just said, to give to our neighbor joyful support and service. The Westminster Larger Catechism says that we should have such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward the neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. To put that in modern English, we should be happy when our neighbor succeeds. We should have such a good attitude towards our neighbor that we actually want them to get more and better stuff. We want them to get the promotion at work. We're happy when they succeed. When things are going well for our neighbor, we're glad for them. We actually just want them to thrive. That should be our heart disposition towards our neighbor. And we should seek to serve our neighbors as we have opportunity. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So not only are we glad when they get it, but we could, if we can even help them move forward, let's do that. So the, the opposite of coveting is giving to our neighbor joyful support and service. So what you can see, going back to this connection between idolatry and covetousness, is that Idolatry in reference to God looks like worshipping something else other than God and robbing God of what we owe Him. Covetousness is making something else so important in our hearts and in our minds that it's functionally our God and thereby idolatry. And we're pursuing that so much that we are not giving to our neighbor what we ought to. Namely, our joyful support and service. So, let's say, that it's, let's say that it's a promotion at work. That becomes our God. We've broken the first commandment when we make that thing ultimate and fail to give God the worship that He's due. We've broken it in another sense when we become covetous about that promotion and then our neighbor gets it and we resent that he got it instead of us. And so, instead of offering to Him our joyful support and service and being glad and expressing our pleasure and so on and so forth, our covetousness leads us to not love our neighbor. So in some ways, the first and the tenth commandment are like the twofold outworking of idolatry with respect to God and with respect to neighbor.
So the first duty implied in the Tenth Commandment is to offer our neighbors our joyful support and service rather than withholding joy, support, and service simply because we haven't enjoyed the same successes or blessings as they have, whatever those successes or blessings may be. The second duty implied in the Tenth Commandment is to be content. As I said at the beginning, I think that coveting is, in fact, merely wanting something we don't have, regardless of who presently has it. It doesn't necessarily have to be our neighbors, per se. As Thomas Watson said, again, quoting for the second time, coveting is an insatiable desire of getting the world. And again, it doesn't matter whether the world is found in your neighbor's possession, whether it's on the online merchandise rack at Amazon or wherever else, whether it's on the shelves at a brick-and-mortar shopping center. When we feel like we must have a thing and we can't be happy or content without it, we're coveting. The opposite of this, clearly, is to do as Hebrews 13.5 teaches us and be content with what you have. We need to be happy and satisfied with what God has to date blessed us with. Perhaps He will add more and better in the future. And if He does, we'll be thankful. We may even work towards more and better. And that's not wrong in and of itself. But at every stage of our life, we need to have the frame of mind that says, even if I never get X, whatever X may be, I have enough. Christian, Jesus Christ Himself, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, is yours by faith. And nothing and no one shall pluck you from His hand or separate you from His love. This needs to inform our attitude toward the stuff of our neighbors, so to speak. The stuff at the shopping center, the stuff on Amazon. Whether it be our neighbor's intelligence, his family, his vehicles, his home, his wife. Whether it be material goods and items. Whether it be better transportation or a new place to live or a career advancement. We may work to such things, towards such things. For example, a young single man might look at a man further along in life with a stable, mature, accomplished life, a full family, a good career, etc., etc., and aspire to a life like that. That's not wrong. In fact, good role models and good role modeling is an essential part of discipleship. We need to show each other what a good, well-ordered, godly life looks like. And so we, we actually should be trying to do that for others. And we should be looking at others who have a good, well-ordered, godly life and trying to aspire to live like that. But even as we aspire to live as our role models do, and perhaps even to attain what our role models have, we need to have an attitude of contentment throughout the whole process that says, even if I never get there, God has given me more than enough in and through Jesus Christ so that I can deal both with feast and famine, plenty and want, as God determines is best for me. I will be content with my lot. Whatever my lot, 
Thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. More on this in a moment, but let's pause and notice that the Tenth Commandment speaks explicitly to the spirituality of the law. Some people say that the Old Testament law was merely concerned with external obedience. Well, the New Testament is concerned with the heart. But that is much too simplistic. Certainly, as pertains to the worship of God, there were more external regulations and ceremonies in the Old Testament. And in the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we do embrace a more spiritual, less ceremonial, less externally regulated form of worship. The shadows have given way to the substance. We don't need animal sacrifices anymore because Christ has entered into the holy places not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of His own blood. Hebrews 9.12 We don't need priests anymore because Christ always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through Him. Hebrews 7.25 We don't need a temple anymore because Christ Jesus is Himself the meeting place between God and man, so that neither in Samaria nor in Jerusalem do we worship the Father. John chapter 4 and verse 21. The external forms of worship have largely given way to a more spiritualized form of worship. But in terms of our moral duties towards God, there has never been a time where God has been unconcerned about our hearts. For example, even during the Old Testament era of largely externalized forms of worship, God says in Malachi chapter 1, A son honors his father and a servant his master. (coughs) If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in your sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to you? says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and this you bring as an offering. Semi, shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared 
among the nations. Obviously here God is concerned about the external quality of the sacrifices. He's rebuking them for bringing blind and lame sacrifices. But also here he's rebuking them for saying what a weariness this is for their heart attitude towards worship. God is concerned about the heart. Again, Psalm 51, verse 16. You will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We see in Malachi 1 and Psalm 51 and elsewhere throughout the Old Testament and back here in the 10th commandment that God's law has always reached to the heart. Even when there were external forms and ceremonies and regulations attached to the worship of God in greater abundance than we now have in the New Covenant. Even in that administration of God's dealings with His people, God was concerned about the heart as pertaining to our moral duties towards Him. So then, therefore, since God's law does indeed reach all the way down to the heart, in keeping with the 10th commandment, we must be content inwardly as well as outwardly with the promise fulfilled in Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 says, Be content with what you have, for has He not said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the logic there. Be content by remembering that He will never leave you nor forsake you. If God's concerned about this contentment all the way down to the heart, then it's not enough for us to profess to be content with the promise that God in Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. It's not enough simply to avoid a lavish, greedy, sumptuous lifestyle of buying, hoarding, and stockpiling. It's not enough merely to appear not to covet. Inwardly, we must actually be content with the promise of God fulfilled in Christ that He will never leave us nor forsake us. And if God will never leave us nor forsake us, then we may own the truths and realities of God's Word which addresses itself to God's people. When we feel that we cannot be satisfied without X, whatever X may be, we need to remind ourselves of the inadequacy and insufficiency of creation to fill, yes, that God-sized hole in your heart. We need to remember the infinite value of the infinite God over against the lesser value of finite possessions and finite beings. We need to remember what Jesus said that whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We need to remember what God said in Psalm 81 and verse 10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. When we feel like we need X, whatever X may be, we need to remind ourselves that God 
in His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. And again, He is already ours in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We don't technically need then anything else. So you can say with me, brothers and sisters, simply this, give me Christ and I will have enough. When we feel that we cannot do without X, whatever X may be, we need to remember that in any and every circumstance, quoting from Philippians chapter 4, in any and every circumstance, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. His grace is sufficient for us. And so though we may be afflicted, we shall not be crushed. Though we may be perplexed, we shall not be driven to despair. Though we may be persecuted, we shall not be forsaken. Though we may be struck down, we shall not be destroyed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. And so when we don't have what we want, we can be sure that God is more than able to sustain us without it. We are always to remember, brothers and sisters, that as we so often sing, we were once lost in darkest night, but thought we knew the way. Yeah, we were lost, but now we are found. We were blind, but now we see. God looked upon you with love, Christian. Well, you were lost, and well, you were blind, and sent His Son into the world to live and to die and to rise for your salvation. And then His Spirit opened those blind eyes and made you alive together with Christ. But more than that, God the Father has adopted you as His own. God the Son calls you brother. And God the Spirit has come the glory of this to indwell you. But now you need a new shirt or a new car but now you need a spouse a career change may it never be be content with God who has given himself to you in Christ be content with God who has given himself to you in Christ In conclusion, we need to be continually checking our hearts as well as our bank statements to ensure that covetousness is not creeping into our lives. It's not not just our hearts, but it's our bank statements. But it's also not just our bank statements, it's our hearts. Are we functionally believing 
or functionally disbelieving the truth that God is ours in Christ Jesus. Functional belief in that truth that God is ours in Christ Jesus. You know what it looks like? Joyful contentment. Functional disbelief in that truth that God is ours in Christ Jesus. It looks like idolatry or covetousness. Looking for something or someone else to do what only God could do. Like you don't believe that He can actually do it. Like He's actually that to you. Your Savior. You start looking for functional saviors everywhere else. Your Father. You start looking for acceptance and love somewhere else, ultimately. Your satisfaction. You start looking for satisfaction somewhere else, ultimately. Believe functionally that God is yours in Christ Jesus. And you're going to stop idolizing all these other things. Coveting all these other things. Looking to all these other things to do what only God can do. Covetousness or idolatry is unloving both toward God and neighbor. Which is why it's alluded to in different forms, highlighting different aspects, both in the first table of the law and the second. If you identify idolatry or covetousness in your life, which realistically you should, you should know that it it ought to be repudiated, rejected, repented of. And then it ought to be replaced with contentment in God. Be content with God who has given Himself to you in Christ. Do this and you'll keep the first commandment and the tenth commandment and all the commandments in between. Be content with God who has given Himself to you in Christ. As we close not only this message, but our series on the Ten Commandments. May we never trust in our law-keeping for justification, but rather rest in Christ's merit and in Christ's merit alone for our justification. But having been justified by faith, would we respond with wholehearted obedience to God's law by the help of God's Spirit? May God help us to be joyful law keepers as we are conformed to the image of Christ who was himself the consummate law keeper for us and for our salvation in his incarnation.